Hey folks, today my guest is New York Times bestselling author Jonathan Evison. His latest release, Small World, is a sweeping epic of American experience. Yes, I have read it, and yes, it's really good, and no, I didn't come up with sweeping epic. That was somebody much smarter than me. He also wrote the book, The Fundamentals of Caregiving, which became a movie currently available on Netflix. It's based on his time as a caregiver for a young man with Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. It stars Paul Rudd, who is playing Jonathan Evison in real life. It's funny, hopeful, and honest. The book's a lot darker than the movie, but you only had two hours in the movie to try to tell the whole story. He also has the number two book on the banned book request list in Lawn Boy. This is the first work of his that I read, and I loved it. Let's see what we can do to get him to number one. The idea that we're still banning books in 2022 makes me sad. The audio is via Zoom. It's a little choppy, and we did unfortunately lose a couple of segments, which I promise you were gems. I also want to apologize to you and Jonathan. You know, famous people, they do so many of these press junkets and interviews, they have to get tired of doing these things. And here at Tony on the Mic, I want to tell the story, but more than that, just give people a chance to tell their own story and just be themselves and talk about what they like, talk about things they appreciate. This episode reminded me of that mission as we talked books, inspiration, process, etc. for the first half, but he became energized towards the end when we started talking about sports, music, and kids. Lord knows, I would always rather talk kids and sports. So from now on, there'll be a lot more of that. We also made a bet about how the Seattle Seahawks would do this year, and I have a recording to prove it. So if I win, he can't welch out. So sit down, strap in, turn on, and turn up this soon-to-be-banned episode of Tony on the Mic. Our story begins as these stories often do. That'd be a small world. See what I did there? Yeah. Run it all back together. That was super clever, Tony. I'm a professional. Listen to a story about a man named Jed. The human experience without, yeah, I don't know. (laughs) Well, um, so Brian's song, and I was really disappointed to find out Brian Piccolo wasn't James Caan because James Caan was so cool and so good looking. Well, I'm not Paul Rudd either, so there you go. (laughs) Because I'm pretty hands-on dad, as I know you are. I respect the hell out of you for that. I self-medicate. You know, I drink a lot of beer, I smoke weed, I get a ton of exercise, that kind of thing, just to manage myself. I have to say, that's the most amazing story I ever heard. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time you listen to this fine podcast product. My name is Tony Lawrence, and I'm Tony on the mic. Today, my guest is the most honest white man alive, according to Sherman Alexi, Jonathan Evison. Say, hey, Jonathan, how are you doing? Good. How are you, buddy? Good, good. I'm glad we finally got this uh, back on the books. I, I've been uh, expanding my repertoire of questions, so I'll try and move quick and respect your time. Not too much small talk, which is hard for me. It's my, kind of my trademark. Uh, your work has been on Wikipedia compared to J.D. Salinger, Dickens, and Irving. Wow. How's that make you feel? Good. All, all writers I like. Yeah, that's a pretty, pretty broad, uh, pretty broad acclaim. So I started, I discovered for those who, who didn't listen to the first podcast, Lawn Boy was a reading assignment in my writing class. And I liked the snippet that we did. I bought the book. I liked it. Then you came and spoke in the class and I listened and I liked what you had to say. And I reached out and that was a segment. Now, how do you feel about Lawn Boy and all the attention you're getting, getting number two on the band book requests? And what do we have to do to get you to number one? I, I don't know. I, I, 
You know, I feel the same way. I always felt the book. It just sells more now. Uh, it's getting it to a wider audience, and it's uh, more importantly, it's getting it to that hard to reach uh, young dude audience. That's the hardest reader to reach is like the eighteen to twenty five year old male. You know, that's just not the literary fiction market. Most 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 literary fiction market is like twenty five to twenty five to dead college educated females. And so, uh, you know, one of the things that has been valuable for me is just getting it to these younger readers, you know, and, and I mean, the book banners are just helping me get it to them. The more they try to ban it, the more the young people go out and try to get the book. Yeah. How, who would you rather have defend your book? Annie Casella from Field of Dreams or Reverend Moore from Footloose? Do you ever feel like you need an advocate to go out? And <laughs> Oh, man. And I say smut and filth like this has no place in our schools. It's pornography. I've got a better idea. Let's put it to a vote, all right? Who's for Eva Braun here? Who wants to burn books? Who wants to spit on the Constitution of the United States of America? Anybody? Now, who's for the Bill of Rights? Who thinks freedom is a pretty darn good thing? Can I get a third choice? Uh, oh, Mary, no, and the I... Mary and the Librarian from uh, Music Man. Okay, her. <laughs> I'll take Mary in the librarian. Uh, it's super interesting. I, since then, since I read Lombard, I read, I read Lulu. I recently read Small World. I thought it was fantastic. Uh, how did you determine the sweeping tone? Did that just come to you in a vision? Did you start writing and it came together? How did? How was your process on that? Well, I mean, the novel really just began with the conceit of wanting to write the great American novel. You know, and then first having to define what that meant. So for me, that meant, uh, you know, inclusion would come first and foremost, because you can't talk about America without talking about diversity, uh, which I also think is our greatest strength. Uh, you know, it's the one uh, one unsullied American ideal for me. You know, all of our institutions have badly failed us for the most part anyway. Uh, you know, slavery, manifest destiny, uh, disastrous results. But there is this one American ideal that I, I, I think is beautiful with pluralism, this idea of uh, America absorbing cultures from all over and, and creating an identity that mixes these uh, elements of all of these different cultures. You know, they use the melting pot metaphor. I would look at it more to a fabric. So for me, uh, I knew I had to have as many characters as I possibly could to tell the story of America be as representative as possible as many people's experience in America as possible. So that, 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 that conceit is where it came from. And then, you know, when one of the characters came, the twins were probably first and then uh, Othello and then, you know, uh, Chen and then, then, you know, I just, I, I conceived the whole thing really in just one night. Um, wow. Once I had, once I knew, you know, I had all the characters and I had six more characters too, that got cut out. Um, the novel just couldn't sustain them. There was nothing wrong with them. It was Alejo Guzman's line. So it was like uh, my Mexican-American line. Um, but it, the, it's just, it was my, I just ran into logistical problems like getting Daniel Guzman on the train. And it just, the story was getting in the way, unfortunately. Otherwise there would have been more characters. But yeah, once I decided that I just wanted to re represent as many cultures as possible, then it just became from, you know, well, First, we want to, you know, we want to talk about the people that were here before us. So, you know, the Miwok Indians, I chose the Miwok Indian tribe uh, 
during the gold rush era uh, and the people who were brought here against their will, Othello's line, you know, the slaves that were brought here against their will. And then, then it became a matter of, uh, you know, immigration, you know, Irish and, and, and the Irish news and coming in from, to the Eastern seaboard and the Germans. And then from, from, you know, coming into the West was, was the Chinese, you know, during the gold rush, you know, one coming through the golden door to, to the port of New York and the other coming to the golden mountain in, in San Francisco. And um, so that, you know, the novel starts with like these lofty promises that America makes, you know, the promises, these golden promises. And then the rest of the novel sort of uh, systematically just asks those que questions, you know, I mean, has America made good on its promises? I'm not very lucid this morning. I'm sorry. I should That's have my right. talking That's points down there. We'll my wife's got COVID and I haven't been, I've been co-sleeping with two little girls that just kicked me all night. And one of them felt like she had a fever last night. So I oh, couldn't, no. she was just burning up and I had to keep waking up and giving her kids Tylenol and water and stuff. She tested negative, but so it just, I'm just kind of out of it today. Yeah. Well, good luck. Um, we'll, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll bring the best out of you. Uh, <laughs> Hopefully uh, you, you understand what I'm trying to get at there with the novel. It was uh, absolutely. Yeah, I just wanted it to be, I, I really wanted it to be like the title. I wanted the novel to be like a small world, like a whole world of its own. And, yeah. and You know, and I have to say, reading the book, now talking to you after reading the book and retrofitting, it makes a lot more sense, which I think is better because it didn't beat me over the head with this broad sweeping message of inclusion. And, and you know, but it illustrated it in a really organic and I felt a pretty genuine way. So for, for whatever it's worth, you got a thumbs up from me and I sent it to a couple book clubs. Oh, uh, good. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's, uh, I, I think the book is really accessible for a lot of people. I think the most of the characters are very relatable. Um, I think one of the things that did have working for it is that so far, I mean, talking to readers and reviewers and stuff, you know, people have a favorite character, but people seem to kind of relate to all the characters. And I think that's important in a novel that switches between, you know, toggles between 20 points of view is, you know, we probably all had that reading experience with multiple POVs where it's like, oh boy, we're back to this guy. You know what I mean? I didn't want that to happen. I didn't want there to be characters where, you know, I've had it happen yeah. as a reader. You, you just, you're, you're, you're chugging along and then there's a character you don't like that takes over the story. And so your interest sort of flags. It was really important for me to make the characters as equally relatable as possible and to, inextricably link them in a way that even when their favorite characters weren't on the page, the, 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 they were being spoken to. They were still part of this larger puzzle. You know, the novel start to, starts in close with each of these characters, almost like vignettes, and the reader is just getting to know them. But, you know, within the first cycle, already the reader gets a larger sense. You start to see how the characters connected. So, like, that angle gets wider and wider, I think, as the novel gets along. And I think you know, my goal was that was one of the would be one of the pleasures of the novel was making those connections as a reader, because, you know, I'm just trying to do what I would want to read by saying, you know, I'm trying to write yeah. what I would enjoy reading. And I like convergences. I like I like novels that have an element of the puzzle to them, you know, where the the the, the author allows me to try to connect the dots and doesn't, you know, I want to do some of the work myself. I want to work with the reader. I want it to be a, a dance between the reader and the writer. And um. So I was very aware of that writing this novel. Yeah, that that it, it did. It resonated with me. And again, I think the best moral 
communication, I guess, for lack of a better term, is is when it doesn't feel like it's a moral communication and that everything feels both tragic and celebratory at the same time and everything connects again without feeling like you're being pushed into a window or an agenda. So I think that kudos, kudos. I think you did that really well. I really didn't want to be polemical with it. I mean, that's the problem with some of the, I think that's a lot of modern fiction is just really polemical and really political. And I understand why that is. And I understand the importance of that. But as a reader, I just sort of want to, I, I want, I want to set my own moral compass. I just, I want I want to I want the story to ask the questions and leave the answering to me kind of thing. I don't look at it as my job to edify anybody or foist my worldview on them. Maybe subtly. Sure, subtly. It's in there. But I mean, mostly I just want I want to sublimate all these themes and ideals in the lives of the characters and just let them live them and and let the reader observe and and walk along in their shoes with them and and Come to their own conclusions. Um, yeah, I don't like polemical fiction. And that includes, you know, one of my favorite writers growing up was John Steinbeck. And, you know, I mean, Grapes of Wrath is one of my favorite books. And and it's great because it's, uh, you know, you, you compare that book to something written 15 years later by Steinbeck, like uh, In Dubious Battle. They're both about uh, itinerant labor. They're both about, they, they have a lot of the same themes, socialism, uh, agrarian culture, all the, they have all the same themes, but one of them is a total political, polemical, like uh, socialist drum beater, you know, like I don't like uh, Indubious Battle just because I really, you know, Steinbeck is really kind of pushing his worldview in that, whereas in the Jode family, and I agree with his worldview for the most part, that's not it. It's not but I don't point, even right. agree with somebody's worldview. I don't want it foist on me no matter what. I, I'm not, you know what I mean? I want it to be about characters, living and breathing characters, lives. I don't want it to be about ideas. I want it to be, like I said, I just want all that stuff sublimated in the lives of the characters. I want all that baggage to come along with it. I don't want to, I don't want to be um, dictating that to the reader. And so like, even, even if I agree with the ideology, as I did with much of Steinbeck, I didn't like reading it. It just, it was just, I, I just felt his intent too much. Whereas with yeah. the Jodes, it's just about the characters, you know, it's about Rosa Sharon and about, I mean, it's just a, about the Jode family and grandma and grandma. It's just about the characters more. And, um, and, 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 you know, the, just the human experience without, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> well, Maybe I'm just um, not very smart. I just don't, you know what I mean? I have my political ideas and I actually, I'm probably not even that subtle in sharing them, but um, <laughs> one thing I really wanted to avoid with small world, I mean, it is a big, you know, the Washington Post called it a big statement about America or whatever. But like, I would like that think that that big statement was made by the characters and not by me. You know, I think so. And again, I'm I'm pretty tone aware of that stuff. You know, I read and kind of keep keep aware of different things I read. And what are what are you trying to tell me? And that's why I was saying at the beginning that your idea that that you started with inclusion was was fascinating to me because. Now that you told me it's about inclusion, I get that it's about inclusion. But reading the story, it was just a really organic story about a lot of different veins coming together, you know, to chase the American dream and participate in the nation. Some more successfully than others, but but really well done. So, yeah. And I uh, think I think, you know, you can see that it was a little easier for some to have success than others. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. I mean, that, yeah. you know, obviously that's a part of it. Uh, you know, uh, certain character lineages are able to uh, evolve farther in this American landscape because they have had better opportunities, you know. But I do want to talk about uh, 
your screenplay, your movie for the fundamentals of caregiving or the revised fundamentals of caregiving is the book and the fundamentals of caring is the, is the movie. And I saw the movie long ago and sorry, but I didn't, I didn't know you. I didn't never really heard of you. So, you know, and I, I saw the, the movie or the, I saw the movie, then I read the book. And, but what got my attention was I have a good friend who is very active in the Duchesne's muscular dystrophy um, her son has Duchesne's and, and I've been aware of that for probably 10 years. So when I put the pieces together and brought it to a Duchesne's group to talk about, how did you, how did you pick that disease? How did you, what, what made you go down that road? Well, the novel's largely autobiographical. I mean, I was a caregiver, I was a caregiver for years and I actually did care for a, when I started working for him, he was a 16 year old a kid named uh, Case Levinson who had Duchenne muscular dystrophy and in my relationship in the book or Paul Rudd's relationship right. with right. relationship ben was based on ours. I was always sort of trying to push, you know, you know, Case was always trying to, you know, he, he was a, he was a slave to his routines, you know what I mean? Cause he was trying to control everything he could control in a life that was ultimately uncontrollable because his, uh, he, he, you know, his joints could not produce dystrophin, you know, so he just bit by bit, you know, people who don't understand Duchenne muscular dystrophy, it's kind of like without dystrophin in your joints, it's like, imagine all your joints are like have nuts and bolts, you know, and it's just like each month that thing just gets ratcheted tighter and tighter, you know what I mean? So your movement is less and less and less. And, and so, you know, like when I met Case, he was very into video gaming, but it was kind of sad because, you know, as much as he could try to master the game mentally and know what to do simultaneously, his digital functions were just getting worse each time. So, you know, how frustrating is that? I mean, it's kind of hellish. Like you understand the game, you should be better at it, but you can't because your body won't cooperate. Um, so we took a lot of road trips together. So that's how I had that experience with him. I mean, we went down to, let's see, we went to Francisco, to uh, Glacier National Park. We went to uh, Crater Lake. Uh, we went to Mary Hill. So we took a bunch of, so yeah, that's where that came from. I was a caregiver and I actually worked for a kid and the relationship is based on that in terms of the um, accident that was kind of based on my sister's death. Uh, oh the way my. the kids died, my sister on her 16th uh, birthday was killed with a car backing over her like that. And so, uh, you know, Ben's irredeemable loss is just sort of more based on my parents' irredeemable loss. So, but it's still within the realm of my experience. I experienced it, you know, secondhand, but I saw what that was like for my parents. So the novel is probably, you know, probably my most autobiographical novel. Huh. That and Lulu. Yeah, I was going to say, you mentioned a lot of the Lulu with the bodybuilding and that stuff was a little autobiographical. I, I had no idea. And I was going to give you credit because everybody on the Duchenne muscular dystrophy group chat, you know, which is a couple thousand people, all said you did a pretty good job representing it. But I guess you had a cheat code because <laughs> you were you were in it. Well, it was interesting because the one thing I had to do with the film, I didn't want anything to do with script writing or, you know, I talked to Rob, you know, he'd asked me for, you know, off the page character motivation and things like that. But I never tried to direct, you know, it's, it's like, look, man, you paid for it. It's your, 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 it's your baby now run with it. But the one thing that uh, I did do on the movie was on set was just sort of oversee while I was there, which was not for the whole shoot, but uh, the things were done as accurately as possible, that Craig wasn't moving too much, that Paul was picking up Craig right, and, you know, stuff like that. I needed that to ring true in the film, too. Uh, you know what I mean? So, I, I interestingly, I was on set more as a, less as an author and more as a, you know, 
caregiver, you know. Wow. But it was funny because every time Paul would go, now show me how to pick them up, I'd, I'd, I'd go over there and uh, try to hoist them up like I would Case, who weighed about 90 pounds. But Craig Roberts is like 160, and I'm like, oh, I mean, it's kind of embarrassing because <laughs> I'd go up because he looked like I was just, you know, I'd done it so many times. Like, it's going to be like Case, and I'd pick him up, and he'd like, I'd almost fall backwards because he's, you know, 70 pounds heavier or whatever. But he actually did look, uh, Craig actually resemblance to, to real life case who oh, I introduced wow. to Bob and he zoomed with him a couple of times and things like that. And so I don't know how carefully they tried to cast him like him, but as it turned out, you know, they're kind of, they have a similar look, you know, big, the curly hair, curly black hair. Did it, did it, did the movie capture what you were hoping for? And, you know, I, I have a couple other people I've talked to who their books go into production and they hate it. Well, I just, you know, it's all about managing expectations. I think the film was what I thought it would be, which would be a road movie, which isn't really the novel. It, it's, it's, it's cute. It's heartwarming. I really like the film. It's, I don't think it's the book. I think the book is, uh, the book is uh, heavier and darker. And, uh, yeah, absolutely. and the, the humor is, I think, a little more um, painful. There's a lot more rage and, and, and you know. I didn't yeah, expect that's... the movie to do that. So I'm certainly surprised. I, I liked it. Rob, I think he did a really respectful and great job. I, it's it's just, you know, it's not the book, but I, I, I knew it right. wouldn't be, you know, you only have, you know, you have 120 minutes to tell that story. So it was pretty obvious. Anybody who adapted it was probably going to cut out much of the first act of the novel. You know? I was going to say the, the book it was a lot heavier. The book was a lot, a lot heavier, a lot deeper into it. And you're okay with that? Yeah. I mean, listen, man, I got paid a lot of money for doing nothing. That's <laughs> I mean, I've already, you know, they've already optioned uh, this is your live Harriet chance five times. I mean, and so even if they never made the, made the movie, I made a bunch of money off it. So I'm happy, but that one actually appears to be hopefully moving forward with the helm. We'll see. Uh, I, that one I would be really, I, I would expect to be really cool to see. Um, Laura Dern is not who I would immediately see as Harriet, but she'll be playing older, but she's a hell of an actor. And uh, I think it's a great role, you know. Hmm, I'm going to have to read that one now. Yeah, there's not that many roles out there for, you know, women playing 80 years old, you know. And, and you know, it's kind of an award movie, you know, like a Driving oh. Miss Daisy kind of thing. You know, I mean, just because it's one of those movies that one big role in it that's going to offer somebody an amazing chance for a performance and so i think that's you know hopefully that's more Dern's thinking do you ever consider the screenplays in your writing when you're writing the novels do you consider that at all no i just uh i had finished writing a uh because i needed something to do i've written five or six uh features i just finished writing an original screenplay about four or five months ago called grim and barely dental practice um it was going to be a novel. I just decided to, I don't, I'm not interested in adapting my own work or anybody else's. That's a, that's a, that's a really hard process of culling and killing darlings. And it's not as fun creatively as just starting from scratch, like an original screenplay where I can sort of do my set piece in advance and, 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 you know, not have to alter the original vision at all as you would, if you had to adapt a work, I, I'm not really that interested in it. It's, it's, uh, so, I mean, if they asked me to take a run at the script for Harriet, sure, of course I'd do it, but, uh, it's not, a. would rather just write an original screenplay like I did. 
Hmm. Any any uh, feelers out on that screenplay? Got any hopes yet? Who knows how long it'll take? I mean, maybe it'll never sell. I know that's out to like George Clooney and Tom Hanks, you know, some big names like that. But who you you just you never know. I I, this is my first foray into actually selling. I've always just optioned my books. I've never and I wrote, you know, back in the 90s, I wrote some scripts on uh, spec and on contract. But I never really this is my first experience of, you know, out there and trying to sell script. And it's always somebody out there trying to on the book. So I don't know. Hopefully it's a great script. I'm really proud of it. I mean, I like it as much as I like my novels. I think it's really good. It's funny. It's, uh, you know, it's very, uh, the moment in a, in a very uh, palpable way. I think we'll see. And it's funny. You're good. Funny is always good. <clears throat> Um, oh, one more thing on the, the fundamentals is, <laughs> is the climax real? Because after speaking with you last time and then reading the story and you made Ping standing up kind of feel like Rocky standing over Clubber Lang. Uh, was that an actual part of the process or how did you come up with that? No. Well, you know, first of all, kudos to Rob on that, because in the book, it's just more of a reference. But yeah. like, you know, I was on set when we had to. When, when they strapped the thing and, and held him over, it was actually done on green screen on the sun speech, but uh, I made that an actual thing. That was his idea. So that was, that was kind of cool. Um, but I did ask Case that once. He had a good sense of humor. I asked him, you know, what, what would you do if you woke up tomorrow? And, you, they did, and that's what he said. He said, take a piece standing up. So again, that was, uh, that came straight out of life, but it was great. It was Rob Burnett's idea to actually, uh, play that out in the film which i thought was a really cute uh you know flourish yeah and another just an interesting to me anyway was in i don't see this in every book but there are questions for discussions at the end of the fundamentals the revised fundamentals of caregiving i get the movie title and the book title conflated sometimes and it talked about pink standing up and everything what what was your process to put that in i don't see that in a lot of books to have questions for discussions towards the end i think it's in all of my paperbacks except for lulu um oh all the all the all my algonquin books did that on, on the paperback because what it is is that you don't put it in the hardback because uh book clubs generally don't buy hard covers so uh, you know most because of the uh, price point most book clubs do paperbacks and so whenever i can i mean i know harriet's got one i know i think all my books i've done with uh algonquin and i think it's pretty standard uh, in, with other publishers too to uh uh mm-hmm. if they think it's a book club book to to include uh you know and i help write those questions and people you know my editor contributed a few you know everybody in-house sort of collaborates on those questions but yeah we all come up with a bunch and then they call which ones they think are the best and I don't know if anybody uses them or not. You know, I've been to a million book clubs and, um, you know, I guess when I'm there in person, it plays out a little differently than, you know. You'd mentioned that you signed a deal. Uh, what's the grind? How do you keep your sanity? How do you keep the, the process of taking care of your wife with COVID and sleeping with your kids and, and keep pumping out work? Well, I haven't worked for days, I'll tell you that. Uh, I... I you know, I mean, that's my greatest joy, really. My family is, you know, obsessed with writing since third grade. You know, uh, once I had a family, it was the first time in my life that, you know, my writing, even though my whole career has happened during this period, my writing is, is my second priority. My family and my kids and stuff like that are the first. So, um, 
the only way I can really, because I'm pretty hands-on dad, as I know you are, I respect the hell out of you for that. I mean, you're involved. I mean, like I'm in the classrooms, our kids go to co-op schools, and I know you do coaching and things like that. I'm, I'm, I want to be a very involved dad. And um, so uh, it's really hard to get any work done when your kids are even in the same house with you, because you hear an argument upstairs and you want to go help break it up, or you, you know what I mean? You can't, you just can't block them. So for me, coming out here to the cabin, uh, you know, two days a week by myself. I come up before the family and then they meet me here on the weekend and the weekend together. We all go back together and in the middle of the week, I'm back here. So I work like 16 hours a day, two days a week and like eight hours on the third day, which is a Friday. And then they show up in the evening. And so I get about 40 hours a weekend, like of actual writing. And then uh, the rest of the time, I'm just thinking about it. I send myself, you know, I try not to be distracted with it all the time. I try to pick and choose my moments. I don't want to be going through the motions playing with my kids, but really I'm thinking about my writing. That's a challenge because sometimes you tend to get sort of obsessed with it. But uh, I learned that if I have these thoughts, just to send myself a note and just find a more appropriate time to, um, you know, like if I'm in the hot tub by myself or something like that. Um, I, it's it's hard. I, it helps to be biomanic. I think, you know, I, I don't need a lot of sleep and um, I have a ton of energy and I don't know if I could, I think I could do it, but I don't think I'd do it at the current pace if I didn't have my particular biochemistry. I mean, I'm two novels ahead of my publisher oh, wow. and a screenplay. You know what I mean? I, I've got wow. three properties that are finished that aren't even, you know, out in the world yet. And so I think that that is a, a product of my insane, uh, you know, Manic. biochemistry. I've got a, yeah, I've got a, I'm biomanic. So I, I have, a, it's a tiger by the tail sort of situation. And I've just become, did you, any, if you've dealt with anybody who's manic you, or anybody out there who is manic, you know, that focus can be hard to achieve. And that's the key for me. That's why I write is because that, and that's why I love games. Those are the two things in my life that immediately make me focus and keep my focus. If I'm playing shuffleboard or darts or ping pong or ball or whatever, name it, I'm in the it's the only thing that exists and 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 it's not I, i'm super competitive but that doesn't mean i have to win you know what i mean i just love to compete i just love the stakes of it like it's fun someone is going to win somebody's going to lose like i always say i mean i'd rather lose 21 21 19 win 21-3 because it's yeah. funner you know in the game it goes down to the end you got to give it up the other guy beat me 21-19 but that's way funner than just i'm not somebody who likes to crush somebody 21-3 but getting yeah. to my point Writing does that to me too. I need to write. And that's why I wrote seven novels before any of them were published. Because it's the act of writing. It's the process itself that I trust. I need something to ground me like that, or I would fly off the edge or I need to be medicated. I self-medicate. You know, I drink a lot of beer. I smoke weed. I get a ton of exercise, that kind of thing, just to manage myself. But like, if I didn't have writing, dude, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'd probably be an IV drug user long ago. You know, I would have gone down the junkie road with many of my rock and roll friends, you know, 25, 30 years ago, but I didn't because I had writing. So for me, it's imperative that I, and, and my wife will tell you that, like, if I don't write for two weeks, summers kind of get hard right around, you know, middle of July. Cause it's like, I haven't been working. And, you know, at some point I just have to take some nights and go out and, you know, go out at 10 o'clock at night and say, nobody come out in the garage and I'm right all night or something. Cause I have to, I have to do it. When you say finished, you had novels finished right now. You have a couple finished and a screenplay finished. Do you ever open it up and look at it and feel the urge to tamper with it and tinker? Or when you're done, no, you're done. I, 
Now, once I've decided it's done, well, I mean, both of the novels that are finished, I'll have to go back to once, uh, you know, I haven't delivered them yet, you know, they're not turned in. So once they're delivered, then my editor will have some input and say, you know, so I'll be readdressing that again, but it's finished for me right now. I, 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 they, I'm at a point with all of those projects where there's nothing I can see from my conception of the work, my, what I tried to accomplish, I've accomplished as good as I can see. Now, somebody else can bring a fresh set of eyes to this and maybe find some missed opportunities for me, which I welcome. I love that. That's my favorite part of the process. If if John Parsley, my editor, finds something in, in again and again uh, where he thinks this could use more, or what, if he has some questions that are not answered in the narrative, I love those challenges because then it's hyper-focused. I know exactly what problem I'm trying to solve. I love the challenge. That's the best part of the process. But for now, they're done. I can't figure any way out to make them with my own eyes better than what they are, more complete from what I originally set out to accomplish. But my drafts, I've noticed over the past 20 years, my drafts, my the drafts I turn in now compared to like with Lulu, I think, well, uh, or even eh, even Lulu is pretty close on the, on the first one I delivered. But uh, I've just gotten better at not sharing things prematurely by the time I hand them in my editors and I've worked with great editors, but I, my edits are pretty light usually, you know, I mean, uh, I, I work, I've been lucky to work with editors who are not prescriptive. who are all pros that have been each of them doing it for decades. So they just say a uh, little red flag here. There's a problem. You go solve it. They're not prescriptive. They don't say, well, what about this? Why don't you add a character here? You know, that, that what they do is they help me make the book I'm trying to write the best book. And so that's such a great tool, you know, now, to have you somebody have to, that, that. Did you have to shop have to, for that or was it um, was it an immediate connection with the people that you have? Did you have editors that you kind of missed your vision and tried to mold it to a different vision? Well, I've, I've been lucky. I've always kind of had a choice. You know, I found my first editor, Richard Nash at Soft Skull by myself. And, he, you know, but I, I'm the one who profiled him. I wanted to work with him. And I had already gone through three agents that hadn't sold any of my books. And I just contacted him personally because I'd been following. I love the work he was creating. I love the editorial voice of Soskal at that time. And so in a, in a sense, I chose him. I mean, I was lucky that he said yes, but I tried to find him because I knew I wanted to work with him. And then when he left Soskal and uh, West of here went out, you know, there's five publishers that bid on that book. And uh, I chose the editor I wanted to work with. I didn't take the highest financial offer, actually. Somebody, I think Viking or somebody offered me more money than Algonquin, but I, I just felt that in talking to the editors and sort of vetting them myself and having discussions about the book, I chose the editor I thought got the book the most and uh, and the publisher I felt would do the best with it. And, and they made a New York Times bestseller out of it, which is you know, way more than I expected. I thought it was going to ruin my career because it was a really ambitious book. It had 60 points of view, whereas Lulu, which had had some success, was a first person building dream on that talked to you like a friend. It was such a departure. I thought it would ruin my career. But so in that case, again, I chose Algonquin because uh, I had a choice. And then um, again, I, I guess I kind of got lucky with uh, when I left Algonquin because Chuck retired, I kind of got lucky. She knows what I'm looking for in an editor and, and what, and, and she hooked me up with John Parsley at Dutton who was very similar to Chuck Adams. He's great, I love him. I have a great editorial relationship with him and it's very similar to that of Chuck. They're not prescriptive. They just say, hey, I think you need to answer some questions here. You need to figure out the solution kind of thing. 
they might say you know, something like this, but you know, it's never prescriptive. Nobody's ever trying to co-opt my vision for the book. They're just, it's about finding the person that sees your vision for the book and in some ways can see it clearer than you and help you make it uh, the book you want to write better. And so I don't doubt there's some of those possibilities in these finished projects, but I don't see them, you know. I've ran my course with them, and but, you know, who knows? When I get a chance to roll up my sleeves again, it's always fun to try to take something to the next level. Yeah, I, I wonder about that. And I just need you to say to my writing teacher that you have to try to see my vision and not force me into your stupid box. You don't have to say that, but I just wanted to say that because I know he listens. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's one of the reasons that I don't like to teach. I love I love mentoring and giving pep talks, but like honestly, I've developed a system and a in a process that I trust. And I feel like when I try to teach somebody how to write, I'm, I'm basically indoctrinating and teaching them how I would approach it because that's what I understand, and I don't think that's a good way to teach. Uh, you know what I mean? I don't, I, you know. So I, I would say I, I don't. Frankly, I just kind of. I haven't made myself real popular with the academics, you know, because I kind of just don't believe in teaching it. I believe in learning it. You know what I mean? I believe in, um, I don't, I mean, I, I feel like a teacher can help you cut some corners and teach you some, lead you, lead you to some places that I just, in some ways, I think if you're truly going to arrive in an original voice and you kind of got to get there on your own, you know, by failing, I don't know. That's just my personal ethos with anything i mean maybe and part of that is i think coming from being an athlete you know what i mean first as a young person i i i don't i don't view the whole enterprise of writing so much as you know yes it's artistic and so forth but in terms of how i go about it uh the discipline required the the process that i trust it's all more like an athlete's frame of mind like uh you know, inspiration doesn't exist for me. You know, I mean, no, no athlete is inspired to go run stairs at 4 a.m. in the rain. It's just something, you know, you got to do because you trust the process. Your right. conditioning has to be better than the other guy. And so, you know what I mean? And, and so also, I just feel like you learn things, you know, like a basketball coach can teach you principles and things like that. And, and how to bet, like when it comes down to actually, I guess pitching coaches can do mechanical things with a pitcher and stuff like that. But to this large degree, the athlete really just has to learn it with their own body by failing, I feel like. You know what I mean? And so I don't know really where I'm going with that. I'm sure that uh, there's a lot to – I mean, had I gone to Iowa or something, I'm sure I could have learned a lot of shit that took me, you know, two, three, four bad novels to get out of my system or figure it out. Uh, I just wonder if I'd be the same writer, what my voice would look like or – I, I think once you start to uh, deconstruct stories in a workshop environment where you're hearing a lot of different voices, you tend to, I don't know, I, I, I don't, uh, it just seems like a recipe for making safe decisions, I guess. If you're trying okay. to please more than one person, you know what I mean? And you're getting yeah. a lot of varying feedback. I think that that's just going to sidetrack you from your own vision. Well, play play writing psychiatrist for a moment. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay down on your couch. I've had some really good success with a rotating writing group, group of people. And you get, you know, it's always nice to have some eyes on it and check it out and everything. But this last piece was really, it just uh, 
like three people want to go three different ways. And, and it was all kind of in the same hierarchy, traditional structure of, you know, hero's journey and blah, blah, blah. And, but none of it was even close to what I wanted to write. So am I being a baby? Or am, should I, I mean, well, I, you know, I would say maybe you're sharing the work too early. You know what I mean? I would um, caution anybody if you know exactly what the thing is you're trying to achieve, then I wouldn't show it to anybody. I mean, even if you're not executing it, even if you know you're not ex execution is not there. If you don't know exactly what it is you're trying to get to, then I don't, I don't see the, benefit of sharing it because you're just risking you know what i mean unless you've got to put your filter on you know th there's a trick to editorial like you just have to know exactly you have to know what you're trying to achieve whether or not you're executing it because then when you do get good at editorial insight that light bulb will go off and it's like yes that's what i need to do because i know what i'm trying to do here but this person said makes sense this person here makes an interesting point but it's coming out of left field for me and that's not what i'm trying to accomplish it so I'm not even going to listen to it. I'm going to be gracious. I'm going to consider right. it and say, thank you. I'm never going to be defensive or bristle. It's really, you know, it's nice of people to give you input, but you have to know when you're getting the input that's going to help your book be better. And the only way to know that is to know what you're trying to accomplish. So again, that's the bottom line. Whether or not you're there with it, you need to know. I wouldn't share it with anybody until you know exactly what it is. Because I've seen, you know, professional writers. I mean, people, I've seen careers ruined this way. I mean, I won't mention names, but I know a, a writer who came up shortly before me. He's a little younger than me and he had some great success with his, uh, he had quite a bit of success with his debut novel. And then when he handed in his second novel, I think he handed it in too soon and he didn't know exactly what it was. And uh, his editors tried to co-opt the vision and make it into a book that he didn't wasn't the book he's trying to write, but he felt like he had to go along with it. You know what I mean? And I remember having conversations with him going like, well, how's it going? And he's like, ah, dude, I just don't know. I don't, I don't recognize this book. It's not my book. I feel like I'm writing his book. And, and so he finished that book and it just, you know, it fell stillborn from the press. It failed and it, he never published a third book, I don't think, because he didn't get the opportunity. Wow. And so the moral of the story is if you're going to fall flat on your face, do it on your own terms. You know, basically, this guy didn't get a third chance at a novel because he allowed some bad editorial stewardship or maybe not bad, just not the editorial stewardship he needed to to make the book. So you really got to stick to your guns. But so you got to know what you're trying to achieve. You know, no, that's good. Thank you. That's actually outstanding advice and and you summed it up too i would rather i would rather even fail as me than succeed as a puppet you know for someone else i mean unless it's like crazy su success you know then we could talk but <laughs> if we're talking marginal success that's not good enough uh now do you ever maybe i mean lulu was your first published novel right before that the mm -hmm. one you said you you'd, you'd finished and kind of abandoned do you ever look at some of that and cringe and go, Oh my goodness. What was I thinking? Cause I look at my old band videos Fun. and it's, and my old stuff is, Oh, good Lord. It's awful. And I thought I was the best in the world at the time. Um, do you ever feel that way about some of your old writing? I know I buried the first three. I knew they were no good. I mean, I literally dug holes, buried them and salted the earth. I didn't want them around again. It was about trusting the process. I just wasn't very good yet. 
And the only way I was going to get good was by starting novels and finishing novels. So there was two or three that were considered and so no, they maybe I gave a copy to a friend somewhere that he exists, but I don't think so. You know, maybe when my dad dies, they'll be going through his thing and maybe they'll find it all. I don't think so. I think I've destroyed all the evidence. Then there's three or four that were pretty good uh, that don't make me cringe. Certain elements of it, like, I mean, like uh, I wrote this one novel named Welcome Avenue that I think it's really good. Normally it's hilarious. It has a ton of path. It's really well written, but there's just certain that I've just matured a lot. Like I just didn't do a lot of research on some of this stuff. There's some period stuff in it that wasn't, uh, doesn't, that rings a little false to me now. Just like I would have done, of course, research harder to do in 1992. You know what I mean? Yes. You had to go down. I mean, now I can fact check so many things. I can look at maps. I can, you know, if I can't take a road trip and I need to take a road trip, I can go find somebody's travel log that took the exact road trip I did and, and call some details from that that are very specific and, you know, things like that. But uh, yeah, I, I just, yeah, the bad ones I just buried. No, I don't cringe. I listened to my 14, my band when I was 14, I think it's a pretty damn good little punk rock outfit, but not because of uh -huh. me, you know, it's because of no. Ben Shirt and Scott and the other guys in the band are so talented. But like, yeah, I've got recordings of us from the early 80s and um, I'm kind of like, okay, well, there I am screaming. I guess I'm doing as good about screaming as punk rock singer. But like, any any hope like, for a March of Crimes reunion? No, I never get up, and I'm not going to get up. I'm, I'm a 54 year old man. I, I just the, the getting up and screaming lyrics that I wrote when I was 14 years old is. I mean, I have a lot of friends that are still playing punk rock, but you know they've evolved somewhat. I, I just I was never talented. You know what I mean? I was a uh, I was, I was, you know, I'm not, you know, I wasn't the guitar player, the drummer, the bass player. So there's no, for me, um, hopefully the record, I mean, we've been supposed to press a bunch of old stuff on record for a long time ago, but it's, it's kind of political. It's been held up for about, now. but eventually that's final the stuff we were in the early eighties. That'll be fun for anything. It's probably like a thousand people out there that really want that. And that's about the end of it, you know? It won't nice. be about building anybody. All right, well, let's uh, head down the wind-out road. I want to talk to you a little bit about sports. What do you think about your Mariners? Uh, how are they going to battle this year? Well, I mean, I know they're winning like heck right now, but I just got to be honest with you, and I'm just going to sound like an old crotchety get-off-my-lawn sports fan, but I really just don't like the modern game of baseball. I feel like sabermetrics has just killed it for me. You kids. Get off my lawn. I, I just, <laughs> everybody's striking out. The league's batting 215. It's just not the baseball I like. I like 1980s baseball, you know, Whitey Herzog, the white rat, you know. I like base stealing, putting your runners in motion, slap hitting the ball, pitching, pitching. Pitch. And, you know, I mean, when things like, you know, when Clayton Kershaw pitches seven perfect innings, throws 81 pitches or something like that, and they pull them out of the game, I'm like, do you think Bob Gibson's going to let that happen? I mean, how yeah. does Kershaw give him the ball? I know it's April and they're protecting him, but at least let him talk about her first. I mean, right. seven perfect innings. This tip of this to me, I mean, Nolan Ryan threw 235 pitches in a game once. You know what I mean? I just, the, the, I understand people are protecting their investments, but you know, we've lost something with all the massive money that's been made. And I'm not saying athletes shouldn't be super well-paid. 
at all. I don't mean that. I just, you lose something. I mean, I'm a labor party guy, so I get it. Yeah. If the owners are going to get rich, the players should get rich, but we lose something like, I mean, Al Kaline won the batting title batting 355 when he was 20 years old. And then he worked at a sporting goods store in the off season. You know, Frank Robinson won the triple crown and then worked in the shipyards in the off season. There's something poetic and just sort of more working class. I, I I guess what it was, was then the players were more like working class. You, you felt more of a relatability to them. And like, these were just Joes. These were average Joes that were just gifted at what they did. Um, now that it's in sabermetrics, it's just, it's killed it for me. I, it, like, it doesn't matter anymore. Slap hitters aren't valued anymore. It's like walks and home runs. Yeah. You know, who yeah, cares, you know, who cares if he strikes out 56% of the time. He hits a home run 32% of the time. And so the game is just boring, boring for me. I feel the same way about modern basketball. I never thought I'd miss the Celtics boring, boring. triangle offense, but God, you know, I miss it's all just ISOs and three pointers. I have once a week. I can give four hours a week to sports with my busy schedule and family and everything. I don't have 162 games a year. I just don't have three hours a day like I did when I was in my early twenties, but uh, even football, just like all the protecting the quarterback rules. And like, I mean, I understand it's, we got to protect the athletes, but like the games themselves sort of suffer. I don't know. Get off my lawn. I know. You I don't, just get off my lawn. I was about to say, never, you, don't, you don't sound old at all. The greatest baseball player of all time. You don't even know. You didn't see the mimic. <laughs> exactly. No, that's. No, I'm talking about systemic th- stuff, though. I just don't like, you know, the game is, you know, and then they start to, you know, oh, baseball is too long and too slow. Well, screw you. You know, I mean, the, yeah. the understatement of baseball is the beauty of it, man. You know what I mean? Putting a runner on second base with no outs in the extra innings, that's to me, that's a travesty. You know what I mean? You're not alone. You Just are not alone. They're trying to shorten the game. Baseball doesn't need to be shortened. It doesn't need to be faster. That was the beauty of baseball was the understatement, you know? And no clock. I love watching football and I love X's and O's, but let's be honest, unless you're going to get in the tape room and watch stuff in slow motion, there's no way you can see everything going on in football at once. You got to get out the blackboard and go, okay, look at the point guard here, opens the B gap. And this is my running back that, you know, you you have to slowly digest that stuff in a film room with baseball and unfold so slowly you get to see everything's happening yeah and so people who think that slow i just think are really just don't understand sport you know so why listen to the lowest common denominator audience and try to speed a game up when the the people that truly appreciate the sport don't feel that way i don't yeah so you can't tell me though if the mariners hit the playoffs you're not going to get excited yeah, I'll get excited. I'll bandwagon a little bit. You know what I mean? I won't get that excited because I'm not that attached to the personalities. You know what I mean? That's yeah. what it always, I was yeah. such a huge fan of the Mariners in the, you know, in the seventies through the nineties, I, I used to go to 70, 60 or 70 home games a year, you know, when Griffey and Randy were in their prime and Edgar and Jay Buhner. And, uh, and I just loved the personalities, the stories, everything that, that was true connection. Now I'll sure I'll bandwagon. I'll watch him in the playoffs. I'll be rooting for him, but it, it won't be the same thing. I mean, I'll just be a shameless bandwagoner. Yeah. So staying on Seattle sports, uh, you're opening the first season in a decade with no Russ. Yeah. I'm kind of excited. Really? To be frank, I'm kind of excited because well, listen, ever since, ever since that debacle on the, uh, on the two yard line, it was so for eight years, we ran it out. It was dead. We ran it out. If, if, if we would have punched that ball in, we probably would have not only won, we would have won that Super Bowl, we probably would have won the next year too. 
I watched the dynasty die, but it poisoned the clubhouse. That play call poisoned it. And so then for five, six, seven years, we were kind of running the same product out there, but it was broken. I like getting back to peat ball again, frankly. I'm excited because we're going to have a, a running game, because we're going to be the bully again, because uh, we're going to try to build an elite defense first and just have a game manager. It's going to be fun and interesting to watch. Do I expect this in the playoffs? Not necessarily, but I don't expect us to only win three or four games either. I think people are underestimating how good this team can be as long as we can transit three, four. We've got a lot of great athletes. It's the fastest Seahawks team I've ever seen. I, I wouldn't be surprised if we won eight or nine games. You know what I mean? I think people are, I think the over-under in Vegas is like five. I think they're going to be better than that, even in a tough division, because I think defense wins football games and running the ball wins football games. There's, there's the myopic Seattle fan I, I was looking for. <laughs> but you think it's myopic? Well, talk to me. Take, take a little of that five. Let's put it at five. But what do you want to put the over under? I'll bet you a hundred bucks right now. You put it at five games. I'll take the over. I'm not going to put it. Else is I'm not going to put it at five. I, I, I think it. I thought I saw it at six. I okay, we'll five point. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll bet five, you so six is the over. I'll bet you six as a push. Seven, you win. Five, I win. Okay, absolutely. All right, six you're on. Hundred bucks. Uh, yep, it's on. We're it. on. It's and it's it's recorded and documented, so don't wheeze a lot of it at the end of the year. Although I, I won't. Hey, I'm happy to pay hundred bucks now. Every week, I'm like, I got a hundred bucks on the line. It just makes it. Right. It just makes the stakes higher. I play one of those pick'em leagues. <laughs> There's 22 guys in it. The money doesn't only go to the winner. And I know I'm never going to actually win. You know what I mean? But I pay the 108 bucks every year just because it makes the stakes a little higher every week. You know? Yeah, you can figure. Yeah, no, me too. To I don't have to win. It's the competing I like. I like you know the the stakes. So this year I'll have 208 dollars at stake with my Seahawks, and so that just nice. kind of yeah. <laughs> and I'll spend about you know. 10 times that on beer every Sunday. Yeah. Hey, have you kind of random the the sports bar, the Ram? Is that familiar? Do you know, have you, are you familiar with that? And it might not even still be there. My brother worked there for years, right across from the old it kingdom. Sounds familiar. Sounds like a place I might've played darts at in the nineties or something. I, yeah, I it was in it. the nineties. And then the other was the, the spirit of Puget sound. It was a, it may still be a cruise ship that sailed around Puget sound and did one of those cheesy. I remember that. Yeah. I, I, I'm not sure. I haven't heard that. And, a lot of years i think like high school maybe even did our you know prom or whatever senior oh, dance nice. like that. i remember that i nice. remember yeah, that i don't around anymore yeah my brother worked there we'd go when i lived in portland we would go up and you know go on the ship and the cruise and do all that fun stuff just because it was family but it was fun too it wasn't just family there was a bar on it too right yeah oh yeah yeah i know a guy who bartended on fritz short was a bartender on that oh. boat I'll ask my brother if he knows him. Uh, that'd be that'd be a small world. See what I did there? Yeah. Brought it all well, back that together. Was, that, was, that was super clever, Tony. That I'm was, a professional. Uh, <laughs> well, my last sign-off question that, uh, that I want to wrap up with, I, I hope I prepped you for I think I warned you it was coming this time. It's the electric chair question. You got one movie, one meal, and one song before they put you in the electric chair. What, what are your go-tos? Yeah, first of all, I'm sort of annoyed by that question because it, I've spent about four hours that I really didn't have thinking about it because I had to have an answer. And it really just doesn't matter because I'm never going to have to make that choice. And I would never want to choose one of anything. I couldn't do it. I would, with a gun to my head, I can't do it. But I did it for the sake of your podcast. I appreciate and that. I decided 
I decided for food, it was tough. Uh, but, you know, I went down to Carnival in La Paz maybe 15 years ago, and there was a little fish taco truck down there that I swear to God I ate every meal at, three meals a day for a week. So 21 times I ate at that thing. And I'm going to go with a big plate of those fish tacos, particularly from that, that thing, which is interesting because I just did one of those memes about which one of these goes, and it's like pizza, cheeseburgers, uh, pizza, cheeseburgers, you know, and then fried fish. I'm like, really? I mean, how is fried fish supposed to compete here? Right. You know, who's going to, you know what I'm saying? I mean, I like it, but then here I am ironically picking the fish taco, which is fried fish, but from that specific place. So I'll take a plate of that. And for my movie, there's so many great movies I could have chose from, but it became more of a, like, what note do I want to go out on? And so I'm going to go with waiting for Guffman. A movie that makes me very happy that I love the light. It's a comedy. It's uh, I love Christopher Guest. I, it's one of my favorite movies. It's just it's got everything I want in a movie. Uh, uh, the warmth, pathos, humor, uh, great performances, ensemble cast. So that would probably be my movie. And then, yeah, I mean, the song was the most brutal of all. I'm sitting in a garage here with like six thousand albums. I see how the album covers. And I think that the song would probably be the last thing I'd do. And so I'd probably want to go out on sort of a, a wistful note. I'd last out with Guffman. But then that last thing to be, I want to be crying. I want to be wistful and leaving. So I'd probably pick like, you know, Hot Lip Page, I Won't Be Here Long would probably be the song. And it's a short one too. So that was the other thing. I thought, well, God, if I go with Duke Ellington, Mood Indigo, I got fuck 12 more minutes. You know, <laughs> the song's 14 minutes long. I picked a song that's only two and a half minutes, but I think it hits the note I want to, uh, as my, you know, my walk off that, uh, you know, plaintive, uh, flanged trumpet. His, yeah, it's, yeah, that's probably going to be it. There you go. That's, that's beautiful. Well, sorry, sorry. It, uh, and I, you know, it's funny because I completely get, and for me, this question is fun to talk about with friends that you talk to fairly often because it does change. It changes all the time. You're hoping I was going to say pizza, Top Gun, and right. uh, Stairway to Heaven or something, you know? <laughs> right. Uh, it, but, it, but it does change. And and I could, it's funny because people have asked me and, and I don't think I've ever answered it the same twice. You know, right now, because of James Caan, I was go, probably going with Brian's song for the movie. Because that movie touched me, you know, even over, you know, his other movies. But Brian's song was like formative in my youth. I grew up in Chicago. And so Brian's song. And I was really disappointed to find out Brian Piccolo wasn't James Caan. Because James Caan was so cool and so good looking. And Piccolo, well, he wasn't. He was, <laughs> he was just a normal guy, a football player. Well, I'm not Paul Rudd either. So there you right. go. <laughs> Fair. There. Um, all right, man. Well, I appreciate you uh, juggling your schedule, making this happen. It was yeah, um, always fun to talk to you, buddy. Yeah, talk and uh, I don't know, in a year or so, I'll bug you again. We could do it maybe next time uh, you have something big happen. And maybe next time you can interview me because I'll be famous. Yeah, that'd be great. Okay. <laughs> all right, man. Mike. As it is. What's up? I'm pretty sick of my own voice as it is, so that'd be great. Yeah, my guest today, Jonathan Evison, jack of all trades, master of all, almost all of them. His music he doesn't claim credit for. He's a sports expert and an author and screenplay writer. So appreciate you taking time. And most of all, honestly, and I say this without sincere, I'm not trying to blow smoke up your ass, a great involved dad. And to me, that's what attracted me the very first time I reached out to you was your comments about 
being a dad and being a father and being involved. And, and when you talk about kids being a distraction, they are a distraction because if they're laughing, you want to go laugh with them. And if they're crying, you want to go and stop them from crying. And if they're challenged, you want to help them figure out the challenge. I mean, it is, they're, they're monstrously distracted. I and mean, if you're not distracted as a parent, you're not doing it right. So kudos for being distracted. You know, we hardly even do date nights, man. Or I mean, uh, I know a lot of some parents uh, dream of like having a vacation without their kids, but like, yeah, I want to bring my kids. It's not, yeah. it's funner with the kids. I mean, it's more work, sure, but it's just yeah. it's richer, funner experience. So, like in thirteen years, we've only had five nights away from our kids. Two of them were at Sundance when when the film closed Sundance, and then just a couple of weddings over thirteen years. So I think four or five nights away from that we've both wow been together without kids. Yeah, I share that sentiment though. When we we took we we were a road trip. We took a half dozen two week type road trips, loading up in the van and hitting everywhere with the kids. And and that was, it's just irreplaceable. That was, if you ask me my best segments of time, th- those were definitely them. You know, those, those times we went up, we took the whole route 66 from, you know, LA to Chicago, stopped at every tourist trap, uh, the Cadillac, Cadillac ranch and every crazy rock that they talk about. It was just so much fun. And I, I hope, you know what? I'm going to talk to my kids and see if they remember. Minute, fun. I was thinking you were saying Mustang Ranch. When you said Cadillac Ranch, no, I was like, no, no. oh, great. You took the kids to a whorehouse. I forgot. Yeah, the Cadillac Ranch is, I remember now. But at first I thought you meant Mustang Ranch. I'm like, boy, that is some wholesome family vacation. Take yeah, it wasn't waiting in the car. I mean, it wasn't. <laughs> I'll be out in three minutes. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, it takes a minute and a half to check in, so it's about right. All right, dude, again, I appreciate you, and we will uh, be following your work, and I'll check back in with you later. All right, thanks, buddy. Thank you. Tony in the Mesa. The Mesa. Outro. 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 That is going to do it for another episode of Tony on the Mic. Please subscribe, like, comment, and support the show at Tony on the Mic on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and the TikTok. All of these platforms are being slowly filled with quality entertainment product. Also support the show on our Patreon page and contact Tony on the Mic at TonyOnTheMic.com for sponsorship opportunities and content suggestions. I want to thank my sponsors and the support side, including associate producer Gary Lawrence. 